Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week's episode, we're going to be focusing on research. I've been joined by Dr. Malina Chakraborty, a neonatologist based at the University Hospital of Wales, who is also actively involved in research. He's going to start by walking us through the different types of studies there are out there. This is a good one for anyone who's got their exams coming up, or if you just want to get your head around studies again. Anyway, let's get started. So, um, hi everyone, I'm Asim, I'm one of the presenters for Dragon Bites, and uh, I've been very fortunate today to be joined by uh, Dr. Malinath Chakraborty, who's uh, one of the neonatal consultants working in the University Hospital of Wales. So, hi Mali, thank you so much for taking some time out to come and join us on the show. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure, Asim, and, and uh, thank you for inviting me to your show. Lovely. Now, from my understanding, what I was hoping we'd be able to talk about today is something that's a bit of your um, area of interest. Um, We get a lot of requests from our listeners who are struggling with research-based questions in their exams, but also research-based things in real life, interpreting papers, um, getting involved in research themselves. And you've been kind enough to volunteer to help us over over a couple of episodes with some of these topics. And today we were hoping to discuss... um, study types and levels of evidence, that, those sorts of things. I thought before we get started, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, Mali, and, and perhaps more specifically your, your um, interest within research? Uh, well, I, um, I'm a clinician by training, um, and I have also uh, gone through research training uh, in a formal uh, degree. Uh, And uh, my interest in research, which is the uh, topic uh, of this conversation, um, started early on in my clinical career. Uh, It took a little bit of planning to get into research because of the um, interests and the clinical area that I'm interested in, which is uh, neonates. Uh, The opportunities are uh, limited. Uh, in the UK and perhaps all over the world, uh, or at least at that time it was. Uh, So I was fortunate to get uh, an entry into this area and and I've um, thoroughly enjoyed it since then. So my areas of interest um, are respiratory research in, in neonates, and um, I have done that for quite a few years, and it remains uh, an area of focus for me. Um, I have also um, got involved in um, uh, sepsis, and, uh, and at, at the moment, uh, I'm involved in a large validation study, uh, which is looking at neonatal sepsis and uh, ways to diagnose it, um, new, newer methods to diagnose it. And in addition to all of that, um, I have a keen interest in, uh, in data science and uh, data modeling. And um, I am leading uh, a few projects 
on data science and modeling of uh, of regular uh, neonatal data and um, essentially predictive uh, modeling of uh, of neonatal data well thank thank you very much mali so, i mean of course, as trainees, we're probably nowhere near the level of, of research that you're involved with. But, uh, but thank you so much for taking some time to help us lay some foundational understanding of, um, of some basic concepts around research and studies. So I, I'd like to take off with a uh, kick off with our topic for today, which is all about um, the different types of study that exist and how different types of study are used differently in research. Um, so I just wanted to start with with, uh, with this really, Mali. What what do we mean by um, study types, and how are they used differently in in research? Uh, so um, I will start off uh, by um, my my answer will be in relation to uh, medical and healthcare research. Uh, obviously, uh, research is not restricted to uh, to healthcare. Uh, there are um, wider aspects of research and uh, pretty much every area or professional area in life has got a research aspect to it. Uh, there are some uh, specific um, nuances of each uh, professional area, uh, how research is conducted in that area. But uh, um, I hope you don't mind if I restrict my answer to, uh, to healthcare related research, if that's okay. So um, before I uh, go into the details of the studies, um, what I'd like to start off with is to talk about what is the purpose of research and try and define what we are trying to achieve by doing research. And from that, we can uh, drag out the various different types of studies and perhaps talk about whether each type fulfills the objective that we talked about, the overall objective of research. Okay, And that will probably give you an idea of where each of these studies stand in terms of, um, of their validity. So research in general is an uh, activity which um, involves an experiment. So the experiment can be um, uh, interventional or observational. So it can be both. Uh, it doesn't have to be either one. Uh, which is conducted on a group of participants um, in a way to try and answer um, specific question. Okay. The overall objective being that the question that we have asked and we are trying to answer, once we get a valid answer to that question, this can be extrapolated to the wider population. Okay. So a small group of participants, you undertake an experiment of some sort, um, reach some conclusions, and if these are valid conclusions, then you are able to extrapolate them to a wider population because it's never possible to do research study on the whole population. It's, it's not possible. Okay. So 
Um, so doing that research or the conduct of the research in that group of people is actually crucial to ensure that the answer that you get is valid and it is extrapolatable to the wider population. Okay, so the methods and the conduct of that research is really, really important. So that's the key over here. I think um, in the literature, if you look at publications, you will find a wide range of um, publication types um, which are regularly published in journals, uh, starting from the simple uh, case report, uh, which is very useful to uh, make you aware of uh, some new observation, um, some new um, um, signs and symptoms of a known condition, um, or um, a, a complication which was unexpected and uh, will be useful for other clinicians to know. Um, how does this can we reach um, completely valid conclusions? Possibly not, because uh, over here you are usually restricted to a single participant or perhaps in a case series, a group of participants. Okay, In a case series, uh, is, it is, is, is more powerful than a single case report uh, because over there you are, your observation is on a series of patients, so a bit more um, um, valid and uh, the, uh, the number of participants are a bit more. But again, these are observations and uh, they, you have already um, uh, suggested what the question and the answer is because that's what you have observed. How, extra, how um, extrapolatable is it to the wider population? Limited, again. So, um, so what I'm trying to say is that case report and case series in the grades of evidence uh, would rate lower down in terms of uh, validity of, uh, of, of evidence and uh, in terms of extrapolating it to the wider population. Uh, you can also have uh, types of studies called uh, cohort studies, uh, which can be um, uh, prospective, as in you start collecting data at a point and you move forward from there, or you can have retrospective uh, data. Um, and you can, and a similar uh, type of study are case control studies. The difference being at the point where you start in a case control study, you already have two groups in front of you. Uh, whereas in a cohort study, uh, you don't have two groups. You generate those groups as you go along in that in, in the study. Okay. Uh, so in terms of validity of evidence, uh, they are a little bit um, ahead uh, compared to case reports and uh, case series uh, because what they have over there is a control population, okay? So there are two distinct groups of population and you can compare between th those two groups uh, to reach 
reasonably valid conclusions. The problem with case control studies is that uh, is about predictability, that who is a case and who is a control, and whether these are uh, these can be predicted, and whether they are uh, reasonably matched with each other or not. So, for example, um, if you are running an experiment where uh, you have two different conditions uh, in two different groups of participants, what you would want to reach a valid conclusion, you would hope that the only difference between those two groups is the experimental condition. Okay, So everything else is very similar between those two groups. The only difference being that experimental condition. And then you can uh, reach a reasonably valid conclusion that if the results were different between those two groups, they were possibly related to the different difference in experimental condition. Okay. So just to make sure I've got that clear in my mind, yeah. um, Mali. So when it comes to case control studies, the po the populations of participants are, are as matched as closely in terms of any every other demographic factor as can be accounted for, with the exception of whatever experimental question we're asking. Is that is that have I got that right? No. Uh, so so that um, refers to randomized trials. So um, where you are actively trying to control every condition between those two groups except for the experimental condition okay in case control studies the all of those conditions are not exactly matched between them okay uh, so um, for example uh, if you have uh, cases of heart disease and cases with no heart disease then their profile apart from heart disease can be very different from each other. So their age range might be different. The, uh, the sex ratios might be different. Uh, their lifestyle might be different. Uh, so, so although you have controls in a case control or a cohort study, these controls are not um, perfectly matched to the cases to reach a valid conclusion that only that experimental uh, difference between them was the reason why they have different outcomes. Okay, I think I understand a bit better now. So, so there are controls, but the controls aren't necessarily a match for whatever the the original group are. That, 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 that's right, yes. And, and so con a control group is absolutely essential for uh, comparative inference and how you uh, how you ha allocate uh, participants to each group is absolutely key in reaching valid conclusions in a case control or a cohort study you have no you personally or the researcher does not have a control in group allocation okay because they allocate themselves to different groups by the design of your question whereas in the next type of study, which is the randomized trial, uh, you allocate them into different groups in a particular way so that all possible explanations for an outcome 
are matched between the groups except the experimental intervention. Right. Okay. Okay. Does that, that does that make sense? Uh, that helps a lot. I just wanted to briefly go back to cohort studies yeah. because I, I don't think I firmly differentiated them from case control studies in my head. Now, you mentioned that in case control studies, you already have two populations in front of you. So what, what is the case with cohort studies? What's happening in that in that study? So in a cohort study, it is usually defined by a group of people who have not necessarily differentiated themselves into separate groups as yet. So, uh, for example, uh, if you uh, if you run a cohort study uh, like uh, there are several um, birth cohorts which have been uh, conducted in the UK, uh, one of the most uh, famous ones is the ALSPAC uh, cohort in Bristol. And that has been running for well over two decades now. And this started with, um, with a, um, collecting a cohort of babies who were born, um, I think it was a few years, babies born within those few years, they were recruited as the cohort. OK, so at that time, none of them had any disease or none of them had were a case of a particular disease and the others were controls. OK, so that at the starting point, there is no clear division of groups between cases and controls. What you do next is you follow up that group of participants over years or decades and only then do they divide themselves into various different groups okay and so at the starting point you do not have clear groups of of patients uh, who fall into cases and controls whereas in a in a case control study that is there at your starting point so you have uh, for example the study that we are doing, the sepsis uh, diagnostic study, so we are we our cases are babies who have suspected sepsis, so they are uh, getting screened and started on antibiotics. So these are our suspected cases. Our controls are babies who have absolutely no suspicion of sepsis whatsoever. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, so right at the beginning, you have two separate groups. If, you, if we started off uh, at the point of admission of the baby and then we see which one develops sepsis and which one develops, uh, which one doesn't, then that becomes a case control study, uh, sorry, a cohort study. Mm -hmm. Because at that point of uh, uh, start of the study, you do not have clear groups differentiated between them. Okay, So they aren't mm -hmm. similar to each other but uh, the starting point is slightly different. That's really helpful. Thank you, Mary. That's really helped clear the difference between those two up. Thank you. And, and finally, um, the, the randomized control trial, which at the moment is considered to be um, the uh, gold standard, I would say, if, if, if I can use that term. I mean, there are, there are problems with randomized control trials, which 
we are i'm i'm hoping we you won't ask me because that's a <laughs> that's a discussion in itself um but essentially the idea of a randomized control trial is you take a group or a population of uh, participants um which is as broad as possible and which can be extrapolated into the wider population and then you um allocate them to parallel groups one group will be exposed to the experimental condition and the other group won't okay um the allocation is key over here um you allocate them in a way which is completely unpredictable and uh what that ensures is that the group the the conditions in these two groups are almost perfectly matched with each other and the only difference between them being the experimental condition and once you have run your experiment and you reach your end point which is your outcome if there are differences between the outcome you can make a reasonable conclusion that it was the difference in experimental condition which has resulted in the difference in the outcomes okay so that's your gold standard of uh, of uh, research studies and and often when it comes to randomized control trials it often seems to come with the um with the additional caveat of of blinding so how does blinding factor into randomized control trials uh so the the process of um reducing um bias is very key uh to the conduct of a randomized control trial um even when you do this group allocation randomly so that they are matched with each other there are um errors which can creep in into the conduct of a randomized control trial and the three common sources of error are called uh, chance and uh, chance is when you have a very small uh, group of participants and um and you are unable to reach conclusions or the conclusions you have reached can often be uh, explained by a chance finding okay um there are uh, mathematical ways of explaining chance but i i i am not going into those um the next common source of error in the conduct of a randomized control trial is uh is a bias and a bias is essentially a systematic error in the design of the study uh which is in contrast to a random error so if i if i give you an example of that um if you are adding 2 and 2 together and your conclusion is 5 then that's a random error okay if you ask 20 people to do the same thing then probably 19 of them will reach the correct answer and one person will have the wrong answer and that's a random error whereas a systematic error is it is designed into the study and if 20 people do the same uh, study 
then they would reach the same erroneous conclusion because the error is built into the design of the study. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that is essentially what bias is. And blinding is, uh, a, is one of the forms of bias or it protects against one of the forms of bias called um, um, performance bias. Okay. So again, let me give you an example. Uh, say you are uh, undertaking a randomized controlled trial uh, of um, children where you are trying to control their pain. Okay. And so your experimental condition is a morphine infusion. So some children are getting a morphine infusion, whereas others are getting a placebo. So there is no morphine in it. It, 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 uh, it looks similar. Okay. And your outcome is you are expecting the nurses who are looking after these children uh, to score their pain on a sheet of paper. So if the nurses are not blinded, so they uh, know which child is getting uh, the morphine and which child isn't getting the morphine, that is a source of bias, okay? Because automatically, uh, and, and that's built into all of us human beings, uh, but, uh, so bias, all of us have this bias. If we know that this child is getting morphine, then we would be unconsciously scoring them low on a pain chart, okay? Whereas if we don't know who is getting the morphine and who isn't, as in the nurses are blinded to the group allocation, then it will be far more difficult for them uh, to, um, for, for bias to creep in and they will be really scoring according to what their observations are. Okay. Uh, let me give you another example. So, um, as you might remember, we offer something called uh, therapeutic hypothermia uh, for babies who have uh, hypoxic encephalopathy. And when the trials were being run, um, half of the babies had the hypothermia while the other half didn't, okay? Now, this is something which is very difficult to blind the staff from. It is not possible to blind the staff from uh, from who is getting the hypothermia and who isn't because it is part of their routine care to look after these babies who are having hypothermia and prevent complications of it. So these nurses are not blinded. So does that increase the risk of bias? Yes, it does. However, you have to think about what the outcome was. If the outcome is being detected at two years of age by researchers who have no idea whether this child had the hypothermia or didn't have the hypothermia, then that is the level where blinding is important. Okay. Mm -hmm. So even though during the conduct of the study, the staff who are looking after the babies were not blinded, which increases your risk of bias because the outcome is objective, 
which is your neurodevelopmental uh, impairment at two years. So it's an objective outcome. It can be scored. It, you can't make it up, number one. And number two, the people who are doing that are the ones who are blinded. Your risk of bias immediately comes down. Okay. So it works both ways. Um, when you have blinding, that's possibly good practice. If you don't have blinding, then you should have a very objective outcome or the people who are assessing the outcomes should be biased uh, to the group allocation. That's really helpful. Thank you, Mali. That's really cleared things up about blinding in randomized controlled trials. So my next question was going to be, so one study type that we haven't um, discussed so far, but sometimes comes up in exam papers and sometimes we see in in um, in the journals that we're reading is the crossover trial. So so what precisely is a crossover tr study? Uh, so a crossover study is where the experimental condition is um, used on the same patient. Uh, so the experimental and the control conditions are used on the same patient uh, at different times. Okay, so um, for example. Uh, you have um, babies who, uh, and you are testing them on, um, on say, uh, six hours of CPAP and the next six hours on high flow, okay? And your outcome is, um, are they having apneas while they're on CPAP and are they having apneas while they're on high flow, okay? So the crossover is from one experimental condition to the other condition, okay? So the same person, same participant crosses over to the different condition at some point of time, which is predefined. Now the sequence of these conditions can be randomized. So in some participants, you can start with the control group and cross over to the experimental group. In other participants, you can do the other way around, okay? The advantage of the crossover study is that the variability between the two groups is sharply reduced. As you can imagine, the same person is their own control. Okay, So the same person, um, so with the same gestation, the same birth weight, the same sex, the same maternal conditions, they are their, they are their own controls. Okay, so the background differences between the groups are minimized uh, to an extent that they don't exist essentially because it is exactly the same people in both the two groups. Now, um, obviously these types of studies uh, cannot be used for um, um, experimental interventions as such because they are not getting the intervention um, um, for a prolonged period of time. And this type of studies are very useful uh, when you are trying to collect some pilot data, very initial pilot data. You are trying to see the acceptability of a particular condition, uh, whether it's acceptable or not to a certain group of population or a certain group of uh, participants. Um, they cannot be used for reaching valid conclusions 
about a particular intervention because the they are getting their both controls and the intervention okay the other problem with uh, crossover studies is something called um, um, a, a memory effect okay so um, for example if you again going back to pain control perhaps if you have two groups or, or rather a group of uh, a group of participants and your experimental condition is a pain medication and the control condition is a placebo uh, so you can imagine that um, if you give the pain medication to some participants first they can have a lasting a longer lasting effect and that can interfere when they become control population um, the opposite may not be true that when they get the pain medication second then the control may, uh, um, effect does not carry on but uh, the way to minimize this is to in your design you have to have a, a washout period to make sure that the effects of one particular condition is completely gone before you start the other condition that is one of the things you have to be careful about when you're designing uh, crossover studies okay but in general crossover studies have got limited value and they are useful for collecting pilot information before you launch into a proper randomized trial that's great thank you very much Mali. And I just wanted to say thank you to Mali for recording that episode with us. That seemed like a reasonable place to hold it for now. Join us again next week where we'll continue with this discussion about the different study types. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.